from PRX. I'm Kurt Anderson, and this is the Studio 360 Podcast. This is Evan Chung from Studio 360. Toni Morrison, the author of books including Beloved and Song of Solomon, died on Monday, August 5th, at the age of 88. Toni Morrison's novels won her the Pulitzer Prize and the Nobel Prize. And in 2012, Barack Obama awarded her a Presidential Medal of Freedom. Her work inspired countless readers and writers, like Hilton Alls, the New Yorker critic. When Hilton guest-hosted Studio 360 in 2014, Toni Morrison was his first choice of interviewee. They spoke at Morrison's home, and she started by telling him about her writerly habits. I recently I've been sleeping a little late, like 7.30. That's late for you, because you're up at 4 usually. I would get up before the light. I want to be there when it... (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that's depending on the season. And then I can work. I'm really smart in the morning, you know. You caught me at the edge. Yeah. <laughs> I'm slowing down now, getting dumb and stupid and forgetting. <laughs> but you work in, You still work in the morning. Oh, very much so. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Depending, is it a fixed schedule or is it? I don't, oh, I don't do it every day mm-hmm. because it's not there every day. When I get the first draft, I can work every day. Because it's, it's something to work yeah, on. Yeah, that's right, exactly right. so. But when I'm still you know, moving it. I started something about a month ago. I have no idea where it came from, but it's infectious. This kid says, I put the cup on the windowsill to catch the blood. I can't talk, but I hear everything. Everything. He's sort of I am excited not only about whatever that plot is, which I think I know about now, Mm -hmm. but I am so excited about writing from the point of view of a mute who can hear. Oh, wow. I am the voice. When I first discovered Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon, I was 17, and it knocked me for a loop. The protagonist reminded me of my father, a black man of some privilege. Recently, I reread Song of Solomon, and I was struck by the friendship between the two male characters called Milkman and Guitar. That deep affection between the two men is something I feel had been missing in literature before Tony wrote it down, and I wanted to know where that came from. The impetus really was that my father died, Mm -hmm. and I had decided to write a story sort of in the area of the pre-civil rights movement, And I thought, I don't know a thing about these men. Mm -hmm. I wish I knew what my father knew. Mm -hmm. And when I said that, I thought that, there was this uh, feeling of serenity and confidence and competence, Mm -hmm. as though I knew he would let me know. So, of course, we had no (laughs) conversation between the living and the dead. But that serenity that I felt, that I could enter into that world with confidence, happened after I asked that question. Can you tell us a little bit about your father? Yeah, he was born in Georgia, Cartersville, Georgia, 
And although I never knew it while he was alive, why he left, Mm -hmm. I knew he was about 14 years old when he left. But he had seen two black men, businessmen, lynched Mm. on his street, hanging from trees. So he left. He had a half-brother in California. And then he came where many people were coming, Lorain, Ohio, which was a steel town. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of work there. Mm -hmm. Married my mother. Worked at sometimes three jobs, you know, washing cars and doing this and that, until, in fact, the war came. Mm -hmm. A lot of black men and older men got jobs in these factories that probably they would not have before. And I remember the day he got the job and told my mother what the salary was. I think it was $50. Mm-hmm. And she kicks off her shoes. <laughs> we were in heaven. <laughs> and that feeling of doing good work. He came home one day and said to me, he was at that time a welder mm-hmm. at the shipyards. And he said, today I made the perfect seam on the ship. He said it was so perfect that I signed my initials at the bottom. And I said, but Daddy, nobody's going to see it. And he said, but I know it's there. Mm-hmm. And it made such an impression on me about his perfection in work, mm-hmm. his sense of not display, but just doing first-rate work, mm-hmm. good enough for him, mm-hmm. not for the ship or other people, but mm-hmm. his own ideals of what good work was. And that was the satisfaction of his life and most of the men I knew. There's an, another amazing story that I read a, lo- a while back about when you were a teenager and you were cleaning house for this lady, and you said you told your father that the work was hard and the lady was mean, <laughs> and your father said... Go to work, get your money, and come on home. You don't live there. You live here. Boom. Separation. <laughs> I have never had an employment problem since. But one of the things that (laughs) makes me love both of those stories is that he's telling you that there are limits, limits and heights that you can reach. And and how valuable uh, I am, or he was, as a human being. Beautiful work. Mine. It's beautiful work. It's a perfect scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, Somebody doesn't like you at work. It's not about you. Mm -hmm. You know, you were doing work over there. Your value is that you live here. Yes. It's not what somebody's calling you names or saying you don't. The lady was right, you know. I did not know what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) I had never seen a vacuum cleaner before. (laughs) A stove that complicated, you know. She said, clean the stove. I cleaned the stove, but I forgot the oven. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I can't blame her. She was fussing. But my feelings were hurt. He just straightened all that out. Go to work. Do your work. Once you were on the other side of being a daughter with your father and so on, and you then were a mother to your boys, the idea of safety, of keeping your boys safe, how did black masculinity look to you then? 
when you were then responsible for these boys in the way your father had been responsible for you? Did you feel the same kind of protectiveness that your father felt toward you and more because you were a I woman felt frightened. Alone? Frightened. Frightened of what could happen to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember being in a house that we were living in then and looking out the window at night, mm-hmm. hoping to see my son come down the road because mm-hmm. he was late. I felt uh, I wasn't strong, spiritually, intellectually, but I thought if something happened, you know. Physically, what could physically, you do? Physically, what could I do? Every summer, every summer, they went home to my parents and my father and my mother and their cousins. Mm-hmm. So they spent a lot of time in that milieu, mm-hmm. you know, with all kinds of males, um, which probably helped them. But I always felt a sense of regret that I couldn't be two people. Still feel it. Still really? Oh, yeah. Big time. One of the things that I loved when I looked at the photograph of the woman who wrote Song of Solomon, when I bought that book, I think it was $16 maybe? Mm. Something. twelve ninety five or something. <laughs> Long ago. twelve ninety five, <laughs> And I remember I had $20 for the week. <laughs> and I said, that's the week. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at the photo... And I said, but I know her. You were every woman I knew in my life who, single mother. Oh, yes, yes. Had a job. Uh. Had this other life. One of the things that you said during that period in an interview about Song of Solomon was that you didn't want, you never imagined growing up being a writer. You wanted to grow up to be a grown-up, an adult. They always knew you were smart in your family. Was there any indication at all that you would be a creator of books yourself? No. They thought, and I thought, that I would teach school. I was 39 years old when I published The Bluest Eye, and it took me five years to put it together because I really was very eager to read it. I wanted to read a book about a vul- the most vulnerable person in society, mm-hmm. female, child, black. Mm-hmm. They're always jokes. They never hold the stage. And I also wanted to write a book about a time when it hurt racism and what, could, what were the consequences of it. Mm-hmm. To take her seriously. But I wanted to read that book, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't around. So I started writing it in bits and pieces, rewriting it, and then I joined a writer's club and so on and so on. But it was the impulse to know, to, to know, to imagine, to have a book like that somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I found that when I finished that book, I went very deep into a sadness, and and I realized that um, I don't really like it around here if I don't have something to write. Mm-hmm. Was, something to imagine. Yeah, but to be in this other, my other free imaginative place. 
In the years after the Bluest died, Tony was recognized as one of the great novelists of our time. When I think of some of the canonical black writers before her, such as James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison, and Richard Wright, I see a big difference in the way Tony imagines male characters. Her men love, and often are loved in return. And that's not something I see in the works of those male writers. I don't know, this sounds sort of sexist. But I think... <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah. I think the male writers feel isolated, mm-hmm. feel separate, feel different. I think the women writers don't. I feel very strongly connected to friends or community. I never felt cut off from, even when I was far away. Mm-hmm. I felt other people and a life in a community or on a street or in a house. Mm-hmm. Even though I've, we used to live in many places, being evicted rather constantly, you get an idea <laughs> of mm-hmm. what home really means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if that's exactly true, but I always felt like with Invisible Man, I'd love that book, Invisible Man, but the title says it all. It says, Invisible to whom? Not to me. Mm-hmm. You know, even when uh, I noticed the rape scenes, for example, in uh, Ralph Ellison. It's terrible, but there is somehow in the language a sense of power, accomplishment. So when I do the rape scene in The Bluest Eye, Mm -hmm. I use very feminine language, very supple, unproud language. Because what he's doing is not even about her. It's, it's about, about his memory. own the memory of failure. Uh, yes, yes. Of his own, you know, as a kid. Yes. So, you know, it's, I refer to it sometimes as sort of invisible ink where you, you do not the overt, you know, when I was trying to make the reader happy, comfortable, cheerful, when in home, mm-hmm. I just removed all the color Yes. From every place he wasn't, you know, on his way. So that it was so welcoming. And it surprises him. Were these trees always this green? Right. And then, you know, trying to find out what color the sun would be mm-hmm. at the very end. Mm-hmm. Here lies a man. So I decided tomato. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tomato red would be the color I would end with. It would mm-hmm. be blood and fruit and nourishment at the end. When you received the National Medal of Freedom from President Obama, how did you feel receiving it from him and being in that space? I felt uh, glorious. There was a certain amount of joy and glory receiving Mm -hmm. it from him. Mm -hmm. And he because I was in a wheelchair, sort of. I mean, mm. I wasn't walking very well. I held his hand out, and I took it and pulled me up. And there was this feeling, I, I don't know how this can be interpreted, but the relationship, not relationship, the aura, was as though I was standing next to an older brother. He's, you know, half my age, 
if you could understand what that's... I do. I do know An older brother. Yes. He had looked out for you. Yeah. He's not going to hurt me. Yes. Um, So you're working on a new book? Yeah, I turned in a book. (gasps) Yay. (laughs) (laughs) That's great news. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. Well... No, it's... uh, I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's very different from things I've done before. Um, would you like to talk about your new book at all? <laughs> no. <laughs> Shut up and get out. <laughs> what the audience doesn't know is that before you guys tuned in, Tony and I were laughing about... Uh, she said that she was very happy to be 80 years old because there were three things that she could say now and not worry about it. One was no, the other one was shut up, and the other was get out. (laughs) Thanks again, Tony. You're welcome. It was lovely. Lovely. That was the late Toni Morrison with the New Yorker critic Hilton Alls. They spoke in 2014. Our story was produced by Julia Lowry Henderson. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 wherever you get podcasts.